And I've shared in the past with many of you how our, our younger son, Adam, always loved the story of David and Goliath as a child. Adam was a little guy, so I think he identified with David going up against the giant. For a few months, every night at bedtime, we read this story from Adam's children's Bible, and Adam would patiently wait until his favorite part. And then he would announce David's words to Goliath. You come with a sword and a spear, but I come in the name of the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. And with that, <laughs> Adam put himself into the biblical narrative. He put himself into the story. And what Adam did is something that was suggested by one of my former professors. He said, when you read a, a Bible narrative, a biblical narrative, the best way to get most out of the passage is to put yourself into the story. Try to see what was happening from the perspective of each person in the narrative. And then look to see what God was doing. And it really works. For example, I've often put myself in the disciple Peter's shoes. Like many of you, I identify with Peter. Peter could be bold in speaking the truth. Peter also could be foolish in speaking without thinking. I've been there and I've done that. Peter also experienced the grace of Jesus Christ firsthand. And now we weren't here when Jesus walked this earth, but we also have experienced the grace of Jesus as well. I've been the disciple Thomas who doubted, even when the truth was right in front of me. I had times where I struggled to believe. Guys, can you imagine yourself as King David watching a beautiful Bathsheba bathe on her rooftop? On second thought, don't go there. Several years ago, Mary and I saw Samson at the Sight and Sound Theater in Branson. I tried to put myself in the story. I tried to imagine myself as Samson, a strong, good-looking guy with lots of hair. And no matter how hard I tried, I could never identify with Samson. That is until his hair was all gone and his strength too. This morning we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. And we've come to the last verse of John chapter 7, and we'll be moving into the first verses of John chapter 8. And it's a well-known passage, as Carolyn mentioned a few minutes ago, about the woman caught in adultery. As we read this passage in a, in a few minutes, I want you to think about each person in that narrative. Put yourself into their shoes. Imagine what it would have been like to be the woman caught in adultery. Are the religious leaders or even Jesus. And I specifically want you to look at grace from each of their perspectives. And when I say grace, I'm speaking of God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Grace is receiving mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ when we deserve death. Now before we read this passage, I want to point something out. And if you've got a Bible with you and you've got it open to John chapter 8, you will likely see this statement at the beginning of the chapter. It'll say something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. And at this point, many of us might skip right over those words without giving them a second thought. Others might wonder, what in the world is going on? 
If we want to dig deep into Scripture, we can't skip over the notation about this passage. We need to talk about it. And so we're going to talk about it. This passage, you see, is one of the very rare occasions where there's some doubt as to the words that are on the paper there being part of the original canon of Scripture. Bible scholar D.A. Carson makes this comment. He says, although the story, he's speaking of the story of the woman caught in adultery, although this story probably recounts a real event from Jesus' life, it almost certainly was not part of the original John's Gospel. Modern English versions set it off from the rest of the text because these verses are absent from virtually all the early Greek manuscripts that we possess. What Carson is saying there is that today we have some of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible that are ever written. And the first recorded manuscripts of John's Gospel don't include John 7.53 through 8.11. Those verses don't show up in any form until around the 4th century A.D. And still Carson and others admit that there is little reason for doubting that this event actually happened. So it probably happened, but it wasn't recorded in John, John's Gospel. One of my seminary professors said that he would never deliver a message on the woman caught in adultery. And, and I have to tell you, I thought about doing the same. I thought about just skipping it. But others say that since this event likely happened, it's certainly worthy of our study. And so, what do we do? Do we ignore this passage? Or do we study it with reservation? After praying and reading the comments from several theologians, I decided that we will look at this passage with reservation. The message that it teaches is in agreement with Scripture. We can learn from it. And yet we realize there is some uncertainty as to its origin. And so with all that in mind, I, I ask you to put yourself into this story as I read it. Try to see the narrative from the perspective of each person and relate it to grace. Reading from John chapter 7, verse 53 to 811. I'll be reading this morning from the NIV Bible translation, and the words will be on the screen. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made, her stand before, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. 
Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. From the woman caught in adultery, from the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, and from Jesus, we gain perspectives on grace. The forgiveness of sins that you and I don't deserve, which comes only through Jesus Christ. And so, so let's start off by looking at the, the woman. Try to imagine what she saw and what she felt. I mean, first off, talk about having a bad day. She'd been having some fun. Of course, that fun was having sex with a man who wasn't her husband. Maybe she was single, but he had a wife. Maybe she was married. Maybe they both were married. No matter the details, she was committing a sin. An embarrassing sin explicitly forbidden by God. And so was the man. She got caught in the act. Now, about this time, ladies, you might have noticed that the man isn't there. He was left off the hook. He likely gathered up his clothes and got out of there. The law stated that both the man and the woman caught in the act could be condemned to death. We do know, though, that the culture of the time was tougher on women. And the reality of the whole thing is, though, is that the man was allowed to leave most likely because he wasn't needed. In fact, we will see in just a few minutes that this really even wasn't even about the woman. She was a means to an end. Still, the embarrassment and shame of this woman had to be overwhelming. And it gets worse. Being caught is one thing. Being drug out of bed and into the temple grounds is another. Think of it this way. They dragged her into church. They put her in front of a man who was considered a very religious man, Jesus. What would it feel like to be caught in adultery and immediately be brought in front of the pastor at the church? They made her stand before Jesus. I always imagine her being thrown to the ground at Jesus' feet, but that's not what the passage suggests. She stood there, guilty. She had done the deed. She had no excuse. We might not be able to imagine the depth of her shame. But the truth is, we've all been caught in the act of sinning. Maybe we told a lie about someone and it got back to them. We cheated on a test or took credit for someone else's work and it was uncovered. We did something that seemed right at the time and later on we realized it wasn't. We said something terrible about another person only to realize that they were standing right behind us. Maybe we took something that wasn't ours and we got caught. In every one of these situations, there would be instant humiliation. We would regret what we did. Sadly, though, sometimes people only regret the bad deed they did because they got caught. You know, if you've raised kids, you've probably experienced this. Little Johnny got caught in a lie. And he feels terrible. He cries. He says he's sorry. And maybe his parents buy his repentant heart. Or maybe they don't. Maybe in this case they see through Johnny's tears. Johnny's crying not because he 
feels guilty and is really sorry. No, Johnny is crying because he got caught and he's going to be in trouble. We don't know what the woman caught in adultery was thinking. We do know that her situation kept getting worse. The religious leaders said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. See, not only did her sin result in humiliation, it might cost her her life. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 22 prescribed stoning for a betrothed virgin who was sexually unfaithful to her fiancé. The punishment was to be applied to both partners. The woman, this woman that was caught in adultery, desperately needed grace. And every one of us desperately needs grace. That brings us to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They needed grace as well, and yet they withheld grace. They withheld grace because their motives were evil. The religious leaders, they sought to test Jesus. They wanted to bring a charge against Jesus. They brought the woman before Jesus. They announced her crime and declared the death sentence from the law of Moses. And then they said to Jesus, Now what do you say? The religious leaders didn't really care about the law that was broken. They certainly didn't care about the woman caught in adultery. The law and the woman were simply means to get Jesus to stumble. The woman, she was collateral damage. The, the leaders, the religious leaders had devised a perfect plan. Trap Jesus with a question. What do you say, Jesus? Should we stone her? In their minds, Jesus had probably only two possible ways to respond. And either way, they had him. First, if Jesus offered forgiveness, well, that certainly would be in agreement with his teaching. That's good. But at the same time, offering such grace would place Jesus at odds with Old Testament law. His ministry and his credibility would be undermined. Think about it. A man of God who doesn't follow God's teaching doesn't work. Then second, if Jesus stood with the law of Moses and condemned that woman, how would that sit with his mission? If Jesus took a hard line on her, he would not only deny his message of grace, no one would ever come to him with their burdens of sin. In the eyes of the people, Jesus would simply be another hard-hearted, wrath-filled rabbi. It looked like Jesus was in a jam. But the religious leaders were the ones who were going to lose. In, in one sense, they were certainly right to call out sin. And yet their motives were not pure. They were filled with hatred. They wanted to bring down Jesus no matter the cost. There wasn't an ounce of grace in their actions. And hopefully, if you and I try to put ourselves into the shoes of the religious leaders... We don't like how it feels. The shoe doesn't fit. Or does it? We should always check our motives. 
when calling out another person's sins, when we call out their failings. It's often easier to find fault in another person than to recognize our own shortcomings. We've all done it. I've done it. And so we should ask ourselves, am I pointing out another person's failure to help them? Are my words filled with grace? Or am I being self-righteous? I'm better them to than them because I'd never do what they did. Jesus once said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The religious leaders offered no grace. Sure, the woman had sinned. It was maybe more than a speck in her eye. But the religious leaders had a redwood tree stuck in their eyes. And so from them we learned to check our motives. The woman caught in adultery was in desperate need of grace. The religious leaders were motivated by evil. And that brings us to Jesus. If we put ourselves into Jesus' shoes, two things should happen. First, I think we all would quickly realize that we don't measure up to Jesus. And second, we'll conclude that grace isn't cheap. Grace isn't cheap. Jesus' answer to the religious leaders was amazing. Only God could come up with such a perfect solution. But before we go to that, I have a question. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was writing in the dirt? After the religious leaders quoted the law saying to stone the woman, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And then after Jesus spoke, he bent down again and wrote in the ground. So what was he writing? Some say Jesus was imitating the the practice of Roman magistrates who first wrote their sentence before saying it aloud. Others have suggested that Jesus perhaps was writing scripture. Or was Jesus remembering how man was created out of dust and these religious leaders were just that, dust? Well, the truth is we have no idea what Jesus was writing. But we do know this. His writing created a pause. Maybe it had the effect of giving those leaders and others in the crowd time to reflect. After writing in the dust the first time, Jesus said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Jesus' words didn't offer grace at the expense of the law. They were not a denial of grace. They were also not a denial of the law of Moses. Jesus' words were a challenge. A challenge we need to consider. John then states that the accusers went away one by one, beginning with the oldest. And I've always just guessed that the oldest were the first to leave because they considered their lifetime of sin. And since they'd had a long life, they had a lot of sin. And they had no right to throw stones. Soon, the only ones left were Jesus and the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. That is grace. The woman deserved punishment. Jesus offered forgiveness. God, grace breathes life into death. Grace is too good to be true. But it is true. Grace changes everything. But grace isn't cheap. Sin has consequences. The woman caught in adultery was forgiven. And that's awesome. Still, her committing adultery was brought in, out into the public. Her transgression was clear to all who were there in the crowd. The events of that day probably made for great local gossip. And it's the same for you and me. Our sins have consequences. We may have damaged a relationship. We ruined our reputation. We lost the trust of another person. We hurt someone. We've done damage. There's a cost. But our cost is nothing compared to the price that Jesus paid. Jesus died a horrible death because of our sins. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus offered grace, forgiveness to those who trust in him. And that brings us to our final perspective on grace from this passage. After he offered forgiveness, Jesus said to the woman, Go now and leave your life of sin. The woman would still be a sinner. Jesus was calling her to no longer let sin be her master. Her life of adultery was to be over. Grace is a free gift from God. But grace comes with responsibility. Paul wrote at the end of Romans 5 that, 5 that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we could take that statement as a license to keep on sinning. In other words, the more we sin, the more God forgives, the more grace there is. But Paul cut off such thinking. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, he said this, he said, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Jesus says the same to you and I. He says, I forgive you. Now leave your life of sin. We still sin, but it's not our master. This short narrative provides four important perspectives related to grace. First, we all desperately need grace. Second, we should check our motives before we call out sin. Third, grace isn't cheap. It costs Jesus his life. And fourth, grace comes with responsibility. The responsibility is to turn away from our sin, to repent our sin, and turn toward Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you, all of us, in desperate need of grace. In many ways, we're like the woman caught in adultery. We've done things, we've said things, we've thought things that are sins, that go against your law. We haven't loved you, Father, with our whole hearts. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves.
And so, Father, we come asking you to forgive us. And we're so grateful, we are so thankful that through your Son, Jesus, we have that forgiveness. That Jesus covers us with his righteousness. That you don't count, you don't hold our sins against us. But you give us the righteousness through Christ. And Father, may we be a people that offers such grace to others. Help us to check our motives. Help us to realize the cost of the forgiveness we've received. And let us seek to live a life that is honoring to you. We ask you to create in us a new heart.